So, Jay, does risk show up much more? On and off, Miles. But even that's tricky to answer, because for a while she was being impersonated by... Mystique. Copycat. Astral? The Hawaiian goddess Pele. What?! I'm Jay Edison. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 384 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And boy, do we have some good soap opera stuff today. I mean, we have a lot of things. Some are good, some are bad, and some are definitely soap opera. We start, though, with something that's closer to a very special episode. A very special episode that's like a sequel to a previous very special episode. An even specialer episode, perhaps? Special squared. Special to the special power. Specialist episode? I don't think it's the specialist episode. No, no. I mean, it's alright, basically. But yeah, we're going to be talking about X-Men Unlimited number 15. And as we've seen, X-Men Unlimited can be all sorts of things. It can be deep dives into continuity. It can be a focus on a couple specific characters. Most recently, often Juggernaut. Yeah, there's been a lot of Juggernaut, it's true. In this case, this is a sequel to a previous issue of X-Men Unlimited. Number 15, called Second Contact, is a sequel to number 8, called First Contact. Jay, do you remember that one? Right, so X-Men Unlimited number 8 was about a teenager named Chris Bradley, a regular ordinary average kid who suddenly manifested mutant powers, and despite his best friends abandoning him and his parents worrying, the X-Men found him and took him in, and it was awesome! And they got him a pony, and they went to France, and they all rode their bikes together. They didn't actually do all of those things, but they were they were all best friends, and Iceman was his buddy. And then it turned out that he had AIDS allegory, the legacy virus, and his days were probably numbered, and he went home presumably to die. Yeah, it was rough, and it was it was a pretty good issue. It was alright. And here we have Chris Bradley meeting another character, a somewhat unexpected character. Another Chris, no less. In fact, because way back in the ambiguous but not too distant past... A mutant mercenary named Christopher Nord started wearing a cool but uncomfortable-looking mask and joined the secret agents Wolverine and Sabretooth on Team X. Making noselessness look cool decades before Wolverine did it. That's right, this guy is Maverick. And years later, he reconnected with the aforementioned Wolverine and tried to clean up some of Team X's messes, and things were going pretty okay. That is, until Maverick found out that he also had the mutant targeting AIDS allegory, the legacy virus, and his days were probably also numbered. So, also, damn. But at least they've now got something to bond over other than both being named Chris. In X-Men Unlimited 15, Second Contact, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Rob Hunter, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Coley Fuse. Howard Mackey was the same writer who wrote X-Men Unlimited number 8, and he has now written at least two stories that did not feature his favorite character, Kandra. I don't know, maybe she's off-panel. Maybe she's just eating popcorn watching all this happen. I honestly think this issue might have been better with Kandra. Whoa, strong statement. So, Duncan Rouleau did the Juggernaut one-shot, which we loved, and we really loved his art on, and I gotta say, I don't know if it's that he's being inked by Rob Hunter instead of Steve Montcuse here, I don't know if it's just that he's a bad fit for the story, but boy howdy is he a bad fit for the story. 
Oh, it's super weird. Yeah, like occasionally we do get fun panels of random minor characters with interesting proportions. And when Maverick shows up, half the time he has astonishingly gigantic hair. But some of the people don't always look like people. No, they really don't. And I, I think this has to be at least partly an anchor issue because this is this. I, I know that the Juggernaut one shot was much cartoonier in feel in general, but I also remember it having a fair amount of like internal consistency to faces and things like that, which this issue absolutely does not. I gotta say, it, Howard Mackey is a very narration heavy writer. And I kind of enjoy his narration because it's really easy to imagine a grizzled P.I. just, you know, talking through it at a bar to no one in particular. Like, it's really clear the people around him have stopped listening and he's just kind of going. Um, <laughs> like, it, it really fits that feel for me. Oh, now I want to have some kind of collaboration between Howard Mackey and Larry Hama. It would be so old-timey and grizzled, grizzled, grizzled. Yeah, so... Anyway, we start with with the Chris Bradley situation, and things went okay with the Bradleys for a while at home. But after Onslaught, uh, people burnt his family's house down. It was not good. And I think this is actually a pretty good time to come back to Chris Bradley as a character, like, literal years later. He was actually doing okay on his own, as were so many mutants in the country, in the world, until the consequences of Onslaught, until it looked like all the mutants killed all of the non-mutant heroes. So it's kind of a good way of showing how those regular mutants were affected, the ones that weren't involved in giant fights. I really, really love it when stories actually look in that direction. Um, I remember, you know, after Onslaught, and I remember thinking there should have been, been more of that in the Morrison run after he outed the Xavier School. For real, yeah. I mean, there are definite upsides and downsides to everything taking forever to actually happen in the mid to late 90s, but it does mean we get enough breathing room to see the consequences of things. Uh, Stories can often feel weightier when we have those quiet issues afterward, or those sort of indirectly related issues afterward. So after the house burns down, Chris disappears, and Chris's mother, at her wit's end, calls the one person she can think of who might be able to help, that being Iceman, whom Chris had bonded with at the Xavier School. Now, Iceman is also at home these days. He has moved back to his parents' house to help his dad recover from an attack by Graydon Creed's Friends of Humanity. I know overall, Jay, you had mentioned you're not a fan of the art here, but a couple things. One, I really enjoyed Duncan Rouleau's Iceman in his iced-up form. Like, he's got that same sort of chunky spikiness that we've seen when Iceman has been really going all out with his powers, which generally has been when he was possessed or controlled by, say, Mikhail Rasputin or by Emma Frost. But in both of those instances, he had proportions more like the person controlling him. Here, he has proportions more like usual Iceman, but he's just getting spikier and spikier with, like, ice stalactites and stalagmites, and I don't know, you really get the idea that he's finally coming into his own controlling his powers, but, like, as him? And I don't know how intentional that is. Maybe Duncan Reload just thought that Iceman would look cool that way, but, you know, it fits the continuity, and I appreciate that. Yeah, his Iceman is cool. A lot of his incidental stuff, a lot of his powers are cool looking. I just cannot handle the faces. Or Chris Bradley's tiny, well, radically size-changing head. Maybe that's a secondary mutation. He's got electric powers. Unfortunately, he has the legacy virus. And his head is just getting huge and tiny. Kind of reminds me of uh, that time that Pierce in the Domino miniseries had his telescoping neck that just kept going up and down. Yeah, that was a thing. Man. But anyway, I was praising Duncan Rulo's art. 
Another thing I really enjoy is the conversation that Iceman has with Chris Bradley's mom, because we see each of them on one side of the page, on the telephone, you know, in different panels, and then we see the burned husk of the house sort of overlapping the conversation from below, from the panel that is below both of those panels, which is a nice little visual transition, and it also really shows just how how much more intense, how overwhelming the consequences of that action are, especially as compared to something so simple as a conversation. It's a good way of showing as well as telling. So Bobby eventually finds Chris, and he finds him outside of Friends of Humanity headquarters, where Chris is about to set everything on, well, lightning. Bobby manages to deflect him, um, or to at least keep him from attacking, but Chris runs off again, this time to find Maverick. Chris makes his resentment known to Iceman. Go save the world, Bobby! I can take care of myself! This kind of reminds me of the stories that acknowledge that when Storm took over the Morlocks and then basically forgot they existed for a while, there were consequences. Or when Farron shows up on Excalibur number 125 to complain that everybody forgot he existed for years. God, I love Farron. Yeah, me too. But I do like this. I do like when what could be seen as an editorial oversight, like just sort of a dropping of a plot thread, is acknowledged as part of the plot and integrated with the plot. That works. Because the fact is, I mean, Chris outright says it at one point, the X-Men have been too busy for him, and part of that's been because they've been busy with Onslaught and all the big stuff going on, but also, like, you get the impression they kind of forgot about him. You get the impression they kind of forget about a lot of people. It's true. Um, do you know how that one uh, preacher's wife lady is still frozen underneath the Xavier Institute with a brood queen inside her? Yep. To this day, assuming she didn't get blown up one of the many times the Xavier Institute got blown up. Maybe the Space X-Men came and saved her. I want to say that's canon. It's a nice thought. So Chris goes to find Maverick, and Maverick came to this tiny town just to basically to die in peace. But now this kid is hanging out and to Maverick's great consternation, insisting that they are friends. And they'd met at a legacy virus clinic, which Maverick saved from terrorists attempting to bomb it. We found out that Maverick had the legacy virus back in Wolverine number 87. We learned more about that in the Maverick one-shot, which, along with this, is going to lead into Maverick's full miniseries. In which Chris Bradley will co-star. So this is basically a, I don't know if you'd call it a pilot or just an intro or whatever, but it leads directly into that. Which is funny, because it really doesn't set much up. Um, it does, however, establish some, some villains who are, are Friends of Humanity members Weasel, Jumbo, and Headcase, who have also tracked Chris to Maverick's uh, residence, and are now outside with a surface-to-air missile. You know, I fucking hate this right here. The Friends of Humanity, I mean, they're horrible, horrible people. I hate them a lot. But they're good villains. They're good antagonists. And part of what makes them so good at being villains is that they're just regular human beings, regular old, everyday, lives-next-door-to-you people who are transformed by hate into something terrible. Not a monster, not a mystic, not any kind of superpowered anything. They're just folks who get twisted by hate. And when you have Weasel, Jumbo, and Headcase, all of whom are very exaggerated by Duncan Rillo's art style— and at least one of whom just keeps repeating everything everybody says three times in a row, and who have this immensely heavy artillery, like, they almost become supervillains. And I feel like that misses the point of the Friends of Humanity, especially at a time when it's important to establish what they're doing. I mean, Graydon Creed, their idol, their former leader, 
was just killed. So I feel like showing the sort of banality of that vengeful hatred, that's how you do that story effectively. You don't give them a surface-to-air missile and silly names. Ah, yes, Hannah Arendt's Friends of Humanity. No, these friends, yeah, these friends of humanity are are extremely well armed and well equipped, and I think the reason for that in this context is they needed they they needed a fairly badass looking group from Maverick to take down repeatedly, which honestly, I don't think adds anything to the story. Yeah, I mean, we know Maverick's a badass. Look at his mask; it's got no nose. It must be so uncomfortable. He has to be a total badass to wear that. So Maverick and Chris escape before the missile can be launched, leaving Iceman, who has likewise tracked Chris there, to deal with the subsequent explosion. And later, Iceman brings Logan by, brings Wolverine, to track uh, Chris and Maverick, and also to reminisce about Maverick. Because again, Logan and Maverick are old comrades. Along with Sabretooth, they were, they were part of, was it Team X? Team X, which was run by both Weapon X, which is to say Weapon Plus, and the CIA. Yes, so so International Black Ops Team, Team X. And during the Team X days, even understanding orders to leave behind anyone injured, Maverick basically dragged Logan and Sabretooth across the Iron Curtain when they'd both been taken out of action and killed anyone who got in their way, including his own brother. And I like this about this version of Maverick. I like that he is this jaded, bitter man who's just given up on everything, but loyalty is this core trait that keeps bringing him back into action like it is right now. That is compelling. And that's kind of one of the reasons I don't like the version of Maverick that's present in the Krakoan era. He's been in the Wolverine series, and he's just sort of a self-serving mercenary jerk without much internal conflict, and that's much less interesting. Yeah, yeah, this, I remember thinking this Maverick was kind of awesome. Oh yeah, and I mean, I know we joke about the nose, but his mask is genuinely really cool looking. So, Bobby and Logan find find Maverick and Chris, and they intervene just in time to keep those two from being murdered by a massive armed Friends of Humanity militia. It's ludicrous. It's it's just utterly ridiculous, and it's, it's got all of the problems that you described with, with versions of Friends of Humanity who are over-armed and over-pumped up. Um, and it, it, you know, satisfactorily demonstrates that, yes, these are a bunch of badasses who do badass stuff, and, and everyone punches each other because it's a superhero comic. And then we get back to the actual story, which is that Chris won't go back with Iceman, because the X-Men weren't there for him when he needed them, and he's kind of got nothing left now. And Maverick, for his part, keeps Bobby from going after Chris. Yeah, and when Logan realizes that maybe Chris is better off with Maverick, he tells Bobby to stand down, pointing out that, you know, people trust him with Jubilee, so maybe they should trust Maverick with Chris Bradley. That is an excellent point, although the, you know, there's the the converse reading of it, which is maybe they shouldn't trust Wolverine with Jubilee. I mean, there is that, but you know what? She's fine. Sure, she was a vampire for a while, but it all worked out. And Maverick makes a fairly, fairly sentimental speech about how Chris only needs one thing, something the X-Men are too busy saving the world to give, and Maverick didn't realize he had to offer until just now friendship, and also presumably a cure for the legacy virus. Uh, sadly, no. Um, Chris is, uh, gonna, gonna eventually die. Not of the legacy virus, though. Good? Chris actually has a pretty big history in front of him. He's, uh, in addition to co-starring in the only 12-issue long Maverick ongoing series, he will then join the second incarnation of the New Warriors as Bolt for quite a while. And then, when Maverick gets kind of 
brainwashed-ish and turned into Agent X. Chris Bradley will take up the Maverick mask and thus presumably start talking with sort of a nasal voice because his nose is squished. And um, yeah, after after that he dies. It's unfortunate. But before that, he helps get Chris's family relocated safely. And then I want to talk about the thing that's at the end of this issue because it is amazing. It's not part of the story. It's it's an activity page or an activity uh, spread. And it it... It's a game that allows you to link up characters and their current relationships and and, and past relationships, I think. Because um, it's, it's got, you know, Dark Phoenix and Mastermind and a bunch of other folks on there. Um, and it's, it's a bunch of X-Men, and it's basically a Marvel sex web. The options for the different connections are was dating, is dating, is married to, was the object of a crush by, was bonded to, is related to, is loved by, is attracted to, used to be, and was emotionally controlled by. Wow, so they're just taking Fuck, Mary Kill to a whole new level. I mean, it is the X-Men. Of course it has to be more complicated. I noticed some of Alpha Flight's in there as well. Well, uh, you know, sometimes you want to fuck, Mary and or kill Alpha Flight. And we'll, we'll post those in the visual companion to this episode so that y'all can play along at home if you are um, masochistic enough to watch you. So with that, we had promised you soap opera, and soap opera you shall have in the form of X-Force but also in the form of backstory. Let's talk about John Proudstar. For some reason, I thought you were going to say John Francis Moore. I mean, we'll talk about him, too, because he wrote these comics, as opposed to John Proudstar, who was one of the founding members of the all-new, all-different X-Men team sent to rescue the original five X-Men in Giant Size X-Men number one. So, his deal. Professor Xavier gave John a fringed blue and red costume and named him Thunderbird, despite neither of those things having much to do with John's Apache heritage or his powers of enhanced physical abilities, and then sent him on a post-rescue second mission that promptly got him killed. Quick sidebar, in the cartoon Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, John instead had the power to turn into a bear, um, which also had nothing to do with the colors of his costume or the codename Thunderbird, which was still his codename despite the fact that he turned into a bear. So, listeners, uh, if you have Disney+, Plus, you can watch Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And I'm not going to say it's good as much as I deeply love it and grew up on it and still deeply unironically love the soundtrack. Yeah, it's not good. But if you watch the episode The X-Men Adventure, you're going to get to see the most bonkers danger room ever. And like Jay said, you'll get to see Thunderbird turn into a goddamn bear. Yeah, that episode is Doctor Strange levels of trippy. It sure is. Man, I love Spider-Man and his amazing friends. It introduced Firestar. She appeared in that before she ever appeared in a comic. Did her pony? Uh, no. No, I don't think that one would have made it past uh, BSNP. Just, just Ms. Lion? Ms. Lion was an adorable dog. Ms. Lion made it into the comics. Ms. Lion was in the Pet Avengers. Good for her. Him, actually. Good for him. So John's younger and similarly powered brother, James, joined Emma Frost's Hellions, the New Mutants' fuchsia-clad rivals, and despite his perpetual and understandable anger at Xavier for getting his brother killed, James eventually turned out to be a pretty decent dude. Alas, his entire tribe was mysteriously murdered in their home at Camp Verde, and James joined the New Mutants to get their help in finding answers, you know, right before they renamed themselves X-Force and relaunched their comic. So James never actually got the answers he was after, but he did start to get past, past his anger, thanks in part to the fun-loving and secretive Risk and or Risque, a mutant with implosion powers and a dubiously pronounced name. So, that's been great. Probably everything will be fine forever. Seems likely. Which brings us to X-Force number 65, Lower East Side Story. 
written by John Francis Moore, not John Proudstar, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert DeShane. Hey, it's Adam Polina. Adam Polina hasn't been the regular artist since, like, number 56 or so. I've missed Adam Polina. Yeah, it's been a minute. And I think his art is just getting better and better as he goes. I love the art in these issues. It's, again, always really, really nice to see art evolve over, especially over a run on a single book. You know, in a way, this is going to be a weird statement, but Polina kind of reminds me of Brett Blevins, another artist on a book about many of the same characters, who it took us a while to kind of get to enjoy his style and who just got better and better and better until his run was over. I feel like Blevins came in much more fully formed than Polina. I would totally agree with that, yeah. But this issue opens with Warpath and Risk, who are sneaking and splashing and playing in Breakstone Lake at the Xavier Institute. And I love this. The opening narration and dialogue are framed as a being about a predator chasing her prey. But through this, the narration deftly alludes to Warpath's survivor's guilt, Risk worrying that she's letting him get too close emotionally, the fact that Warpath is finally starting to let go of his past by sharing his present with her. And I'm not sure what it is, but... As much as we've complained about Warpath's recent appearance transformation, like cutting off all of his hair and looking a little bit more, I guess, generic, I don't know. The look works for me here. I really enjoy the giant Thunderbird tattoo on his back. Like, you know, tribal-specific relevance or not, that was his brother's codename. It's a good way of honoring his brother while maybe moving on. I don't know if it's a specific symbol that it's on his back and not his front, and he's moving on from it. I'm probably reading too much into it. Wow, I am I am really not on the same page with with you as as far as the short hair. It is it is just continuing to not land for me. Yeah, I don't know. I think Polina's just getting to be a better artist in general and so Warpath looks more interesting instead of just the big guy with the short hair. Mm. There is there is one panel where his head is turned all the way around like an owl's. And as they flirt fight, Warpath mentions that he still doesn't know her real name, to which she jumps in. Gloria Munoz. Any other questions? And, in fact, she gives more answers. We learn that she's half Cuban and half Seminole, that her parents divorced and she went off on her her own at 16. And Siren accidentally interrupts them right as they kiss. Now, as you may recall, Siren and Warpath sort of had an ongoing will-they-won't-they dynamic. He was very, very into her. She reciprocated to some extent, but had so much of her own stuff going on that she didn't really feel like she could get into a relationship with him and kept on kind of stringing him along on that front. And finally, he, you know, disappeared and obviously has gotten together with Risk, which is giving Siren some feelings. As, as she narrates to herself after icily refusing Risk's invitation to accompany them club hopping. Stupid, Teresa, stupid. You're the one who told James you just wanted to be friends, so you've no right to be jealous, even if you are. Just like in recent X-Factor, it feels like things are starting to really happen. We're learning about Risk, there's development in this soap opera love triangle. It's nice to feel like we're not just treading water. It is, even even if the characters were literally doing so just a minute ago. It's true. So it turns out Risk, unsurprisingly, is basically the best club-hopping partner ever. She knows everyone, everybody loves her, the various clubs' slimy jerks are terrified of her. And what makes this work, and what makes Risk suddenly start to be interesting for, I think, the first time in comics that we've read about her, she's including James in everything. She's herself, very much, 
but she's here with him and she's opening up to him without compromising who she is. Those balance really, really well. Like you find yourself really rooting for them as a couple. I'm also rooting for Polina's art in this club. It is just full of lights and of so many goddamn people. And all the people are doing their own things. They're dancing or they're drinking or they're flirting with each other or they're having little arguments. Like, there's just so much variation here. It makes the club feel super alive and I want to be there, but I think I just haven't really been in many crowds in the last few years and I miss it. So... You may be rooting for for Risk and and James, but unfortunately they are an ex-couple and thus are inherently star-crossed. And in this case, those those hostile stars come in the form of Blob and Mimic, because Risk was supposed to bring James Proudstar to someone, and she has taken too long. So Blob and Mimic have been sent to bring him in. Now this this goes back a little bit. This takes us back to X-Force number 60 where Risk was pulled from the rubble of the X-Mansion by Blob and Mimic, who brought her to a maniacally grinning shadowy figure. Um, she told him that the, the shadowy figure that she'd made a mistake and wanted to quit, the shadowy figure said that wasn't part of their deal. And it was implied heavily at that point that Blob and Mimic were working for Onslaught, um, and so that the figure she was talking to might therefore be Onslaught, but apparently that's not the case. Apparently it is someone else. Yeah, the last time we saw Mimic before that was way back in X-Force number 47 when his powers were out of control in Siberia. Now they're not out of control. And we saw Blob with new souped-up powers in X-Force number 52 when all the female characters of the team beat the hell out of him. So this must be all related. Perhaps related to Blob's amazing look? He is wearing this ruffle front tuxedo shirt and is chomping on a giant cigar. And because his new souped up powers allow him to sort of move his mass around his body however he feels like, like he has a prehensile everything pretty much. He's just this big exaggerated cartoon character and Polina's art style is so beautiful. It's almost like he's, ch- he's channeling a little bit of Duncan Rouleau from the Juggernaut one shot. Yeah, I can see that. He's he's got that sort of protean and again intensely intensely kind of dynamically cartoonish look. I think a lot of people forgot about this new aspect of Blob's powers because I haven't seen him do this in like decades. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know if it, it if it's officially ended or or lasted or what. Yeah, my uh my blobology degree is uh, is incomplete. Uh Mimic for his part while he used to just look like a jerk in an orange costume, uh, now he pretty much looks like white Jesus, but with wings. He grew his hair out, and he's got a beard and doesn't wear a shirt. I guess he's a little bit like Nate Gray when Nate Gray becomes a messiah. Or or Angel at any given time. He may just be channeling Angel with the whole toplessness. Oh, you know what? He did permanently absorb the powers of all five original X-Men, and Angel's secondary mutation is shirtlessness. His tertiary mutation is doing everything like a hawk. Mm. Swooping. Swooping about. Stacking. Stacking, yeah. Risk uses her implosion-based powers to implode the ground under the blob, sending him into the sewer, which is a new fun variation on that old theme. I mean, you can't move him, so you just move the ground under him in various ways. But unfortunately, she is still not quite on the side of the angels, because later on she pours James a celebratory drink, and it's pretty heavily drugged. I thought... You cared. I do, baby. I do. This is business. Aw, jeez, comic. You make us root for these kids, and now you just twist the knife? Well done. Well done. 
Meanwhile, back at Stately Xavier Manor, Siren and Shatterstar sword fight in the danger room, um, up a dramatic staircase around a tower over flames, which is a pretty delightful setting. Oh, it's great. The flames also mean that us, that Shatterstar and Siren have their shadows cast, like, all giant while they're sword fighting behind them. It's so dramatic. This is the proper way to use the danger room. Like, you don't just, you know, come up with different battlegrounds to learn to fight in. You come up with different battlegrounds to learn to fight in, and you make it look awesome. Yeah, like, if I had access to a danger room and I was using it for training, I would go so weird. Like, I would be like, yeah, what what's a setting that will teach me these skills but has absolutely no relationship to any real place where I'm likely to use them? Exactly. Shatterstar utterly fails to give Siren romantic advice, saying he's the wrong guy to talk to, but dude, you're gonna be such a pansexual powerhouse in, like, 10-20 years. It's gonna be amazing. 10 or 20 years. Like, he has to take some time to ramp up to it. Yeah, fair. And as they finish their duel, they find Sunspot and Meltdown watching Caliban playing the piano really beautifully, complete with one of those trademark Adam Polina, like, renaissance halos around his head. But unfortunately, Caliban, once he realizes he's being watched, his mind goes blank, he forgets how to play the piano, and has a seizure. So that's a thing. That brings us to X-Force number 66, Tragic Kingdom. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Tragic Kingdom, that was that No Doubt album. I think it came out, like, a year or two before this. I remember there was that single, Spiderwebs, that everybody loved, and so my brother got the CD, and we were very surprised to find that, um, actually it was mostly a ska album, and the single didn't sound much like anything else on it. Kind of like No Rain by Blind Melon. Not representative. I see. Didn't you get that one Chumbawamba album for similar reasons? Yeah, but they turned out to be awesome. They kind of did, right? So th- that was sorry, So that was less not getting what you were in for than not really knowing what you were in for and discovering that it was better than you had imagined. Yeah. Ah, the 90s. Speaking of the 90s, this comic was published then. The cover is Caliban, Sunspot, and Boom Boom grinning with various cartoon animal mascots around them in front of a theme park. And you know... Those are good choices of characters, because if any members of X-Force were just going to enjoy the living hell out of what's basically off-brand Disney, it would totally be those three. I definitely want a cover of of Cable staunchly refusing to have fun at Disney World. So this theme park is Wacky World, which is a mascot-based theme park with a bunch of rides in Florida. It is not subtle. I mean, obviously it's Disney World. Uh, I guess that would have been too much copyright infringement at the time to just straight up go for it's also got subparks like Fairy Tale Land and Astro World. Like it's exactly it's Magic Kingdom. Uh yeah, yeah, very much. Although there's actually a Dr. Seussian barber pole with signs with arrows on them saying far and near in the background of one panel. Uh which is a specific reference, I mean obviously to Dr. Seuss, but also to Seuss Landing, which is a subpark that's in Universal Studios Islands of Adventure, which is nearby, not Disney. We um we grew up in Florida. On one hand, that is that's a good point, but on the other hand, Islands of Adventure would not open for another couple years. Oh, I wonder if Seuss Landing was somewhere else, or if it also didn't exist at this point. Or if it was just a cool cartoony thing to throw into a cool cartoony theme park. I don't know. Fascinating. But we get some narration from our lead character in this issue, who is, in fact, Risk, which is an interesting choice. We just saw her betray Warpath. And we learn Risk's history with Wacky World. She went here with her dad as a kid. 
then started making trouble there with her friends when she was old enough that hanging out with her dad wasn't cool anymore, then got a job here before getting fired for smoking while in costume. This actually sounds a lot like some of the relationships that people who have spent a long time in Florida or grown up there have with Disney World. Like, if you live nearby, it's not that big of a deal to be there, so you kind of go—you can go there somewhat regularly. Like, it's a lot cheaper for locals. Well, it used to be. It's—it's much—that's much less the case now. But it, it used to be that you could you could get in fairly inexpensively more, I think, more Disneyland than Disney World. Okay, gotcha. I just know that my family wasn't very well off at all, and we ended up going to Disney World regularly enough that I have a lot of memories there. Like, I know for, for mine it was like a once-every-very-long-time thing. Ah, fair. Well, this continues to be very Floridian. I mean, we learned last issue that Risk is half Cuban and half Seminole. We learned that apparently she's extremely familiar with Florida, that this all makes sense. Like, I don't know if John Francis Moore has a bunch of Florida knowledge himself, or if he just talked to people who did, but this actually feels pretty authentic, and I'm getting kind of nostalgic with the whole thing. I, I gotta throw this in because it's Finder, but the absolute best Disney World riff, if you're after one of those, is is always gonna be King of the Cats. Oh, that's the second volume of Finder, right? The second story? Uh, it's the second story, third volume. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, alas, Risk isn't just going to enjoy the surprisingly good churros here. She is being chased by Caliban, who is freaking everybody out by smashing everything to get to her. And Polina goes hard on the foreshortening and on Caliban's giant roaring mouth here. The art is just fun in this scene. I mean, he's clearly having fun drawing a theme park. Uh, behind everybody, like, in the backgrounds, which he does not skimp on. But he's also just sort of going hard on character design. So, in, in yet another Disney reference, she takes a sky train, basically the monorail, from Fairy Tale Town to Astro World. Monorail was my first multisyllabic word. Did I mention that we went to Disney a lot when I was a kid? Y- you did. You did. So much of this comic is from Risk's perspective, through her narration, as she runs from X-Force as they try to catch up with her to get her to bring them to Warpath. But it also becomes clear, as we get to know Risk better through her own words, that she's also just trying to keep herself constantly distracted so she doesn't have to face her guilt. And that works really well with what we learned from her last issue, with her being such a club-hopping, popular, life-of-the-party character— you really get the impression that a lot of Risk's time, a lot of her history is spent just not having to think too hard about things, just being so busy, so intense all the time that she doesn't have to slow down and deal with anything. She'd probably get along really well with Yukio. Oh man, she totally would. Or they would hate each other. It would be one of those. I don't know. Maybe both. Her goal right now is to try to get into the network of tunnels underneath the park through one of the ride service exits, which is totally a real thing. That is a thing in Disney. Yeah, it's where they, t- it's where they take you if you're really bad. Mmm, the tunnels. The tunnels. I think it's also what they take you through if you die, because they don't want anyone to see that, and then they pronounce you dead off-premises to keep up the literal fact that nobody officially dies in Disney. Man, see, this is why I don't like theme parks. I mean, I like them. To be fair, I haven't died yet. I might change my mind if I did. Mm. The ride she gets on here, it's the Wacky Town Joy Ride. I think it's a riff on Roger Rabbit's cartoon Spin, which had indeed been around for a couple of years at this point. I checked. Uh, not sure. But Caliban does indeed find her in that ride as he tears it apart to get to her, at which point he has another seizure, just like last issue. 
and she's gonna run away, but she comes back. She can't do it. She comes back to help instead, which means, of course, that X-Force catches up and catches her. So basically, this two-issue story is just making me love Risk so much as a character after having basically no feelings about her previously. Yeah, yeah, I really like her. I know, right? Like, I'm super excited for her to be a presence in this book for a while. I know she never really caught on after this. Like, she showed up in X-Corporation briefly, and then I think she maybe died. She did show up recently in Sword, but this is kind of her big run, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Like, as if we needed another reason to look forward to continuing John Francis Moore's X-Force run. Risk's playful charm in responding to Siren accomplishes jack shit. Siren has no patience for her, but does have an arm lock for her. But what the hell is up with Warpath anyway? Where did he go? So Warpath wakes up in Detroit, in a warehouse full of junk, to find um, that he is the prisoner of a squat yellow man with crutches named Sledge. Okay, I gotta point out that shadowy figure that we saw in X-Force number 60 that Blob and Mimic were working for. Uh, yeah, he looked nothing like this guy. This is clearly one of those plot threads where they just threw in a mystery and figure out what it was actually going to be later under a different creative team. I mean, remember Apocalypse? Oh, yeah. You mean the owl? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. The shadowy figure in number 60 was also way more evil-seeming. Like, this guy's pretty chill. He offers Warpath a beer, and he immediately explains what's going on. That basically Risk, Blob, and Mimic all owe him various favors, the latter two for him helping them with their powers. And uh, he wants to offer Warpath a deal as well. If Warpath does sledge an unnamed so far favor, then Sledge will tell Warpath how to find somebody who actually survived from the massacre at Camp Verde. Michael Whitecloud, an old friend of his older brother John of Thunderbird. And this is a big deal, because until now, as far as James knew, no one, well, he he was the only survivor of the, of of his tribe, of his entire community. And not only has Michael survived, but Sledge implies that Michael therefore knows something about how the massacre came to pass. X-Force does eventually catch up with Warpath and find Sledge's hideout. Risk, you know, talked. I mean, she wasn't going to be a super jerk about it. And Warpath is fine. Warpath is like, no, it's cool. We're just drinking beers. I'm going to be ready to head out in just a minute. What he is not cool about is Risk's attempt to explain. Ever since I lost my tribe, my family, I felt completely alone. You changed all that. I felt comfortable with you, like I belonged. Now, I realize it was all a lie. Don't call me. So, that, as far as we can tell, is going to be the end of Warpath and Risk. But, meanwhile, we've got a bit of a tag involving a character we haven't seen in the book for a while, and that is Domino. Uh, yeah, she's on her way back from her miniseries, uh, flying into JFK Airport, only to be detained and brought to GW Bridge of S.H.I.E.L.D. GW wants Domino to undertake a delicate, delicate job for him. Specifically, he wants her to rescue one of their deep cover operatives who is now on the radar of Operation Zero Tolerance. That being... Danielle Moonstar! So that's who she's been working for. We finally, finally find out. Yeah, yeah, so Danielle Moonstar is, is currently an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well done, Danny. I think. I guess. 
I just hope she gets to keep that rad mutant liberation front costume she was wearing. That thing looks cool. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Polymath96 asks on Tumblr, Has anyone ever gone to the punch dimension to which Cyclops' eyes are portals? Jay, maybe we should remind our listeners what the punch dimension is. The punch dimension is, um... Okay, so Cyclops' powers were originally something that his body generated by absorbing sunlight. Later on, because someone felt the need to come up with a more, I, I don't know if plausible is the word here, but a more something explanation, it was determined that his eyes are in fact portals to a dimension of pure force, nicknamed by fans the Punch Dimension. I love that bit of continuity so much. It's never been referenced after that one iteration of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, but in my heart, it is so very true forever. Now, that dimension of pure force has been traversed at least briefly. Specifically, America Chavez kicked through it um, and traveled through it very, very briefly to punch a Chitari dragon in Ultimates 2, number 9. By, as you might imagine, Al Ewing, bless him once again. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, How much do we know about the physics of the ramps Iceman uses to travel through the air? Do they ever collapse under their own weight or as they melt? Uh, well, the answer, as it so often is, is sometimes. Now, if there is anything that on multiple levels follows the rule of cool, it's gotta be Iceman's ice ramps. Nice. So, in the first issue we covered today, uh, Bobby's mom specifically tells him to clean up his ice sled that he takes into his bedroom before it makes a huge mess. So, they definitely do melt, and he did get in trouble back in the day at least once for collapsing ice ramps that posed a threat to the civilians nearby. Well, it was established way, way back in X-Factor that they melt, because remember the kids from the team cleaned up an area that he had largely iced over when he lost control of his powers. Yes, yes they did. It's a good thing that so many of the X-Men's fights are either in cities with good drainage systems or in the wilderness or other planets or whatever, because things must get seriously uh, wet after, like, all of his battles. That said... Iceman is an Omega Mutant, and he's been getting more and more control over his powers as time has gone on. So these days, I think he could easily just dissipate the ramps into ambient moisture in the air and just have them basically immediately disappear. Uh, back in the day, though, not so much. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The microphone today goes, somewhat unexpectedly, to Arcade. Elaborate animatronics? Colorful costumes? A name ending in world? Well, bless my bow tie. The ravishing risk has fled to a theme park that bears a striking resemblance to my marvelous murder world. Now, a lesser mastermind might consider taking legal action at such a brazen bit of copyright infringement, or might just assassinate the folks in charge, but where's the fun in that? No, I'll just enjoy the show. It could be educational. So let us spectate and speculate as Zack Larkin gets on Wacky World's Ferris wheel. That's right, Zack. Lower that safety bar and smile as the wheel begins to turn. Rise into the sky, higher and higher, and then the spinning blades above descend and the blast furnace below ignites. Which end shall you meet, Zack Larkin? Which... Uh, oh, the wheel is just turning gently and giving you a good view of the park. Okay, I guess something must have malfunctioned. That is very disappointing. Okay, 
Okay, moving on to Brian Covey entering the Hall of Mirrors. Wander through the twists and turns, Brian. Chuckle at the curved and wavy mirrors that distort your form. And then flee! Flee in terror from the reflections that are actually ravenous robot duplicates of yourself of all shapes and sizes with slashing claws and gnashing teeth. Flee until your legs give out and the robots descend upon you like so many carrion birds. Oh, or you could just find your way out and buy a hot dog, which is pretty anticlimactic. You know what? I am going to sue, which is to say, murder. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Strong Guy Wakes Up just in time for his own one-shot. 